in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Frank. If you don't know, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, actually I've only been here a month now, and um, the pickling process is in full swing. Uh, people are telling me that I'm looking more and more like an Arcadian every day, and that is my goal, is to look as much like an Arcadian as I possibly can. Um, one of the things that um, I've discovered about uh, Redemption Arcadia, by the way, if you don't know, uh, Redemption is actually a multi-congregational church, and this is the Arcadia congregation, the Arcadia expression of redemption. Uh, one of the things I, I've learned to really appreciate already as I've been pickled uh, is the leadership culture that we have here. Uh, even though this congregation has been in transition for quite a while, uh, kind of an interim period, especially with Tyler here and everything, uh, it did not prevent the leadership from moving forward with a lot of things and doing a lot of important things. Uh, there wasn't this idea that they were just going to wait around for things to happen. And so uh, when I actually walked in here May, uh, February 1st uh, to start working here, uh, I found out that there were a lot of things that were already in transition and moving forward. Uh, one of those uh, kind of culminates today. Uh, today is the first Sunday that we have a new children's director, uh, uh, Jess Crumptinger, who has done a magnificent job for us, um, really from the very beginning, kind of building this thing, uh, the children's ministry from scratch. Uh, she and her husband, Luke, have kind of entered a new season in life, and, and uh, uh, the church has known about that for a number of months, and, and uh, as Tyler discerned the spirit working in the church, uh, he, he realized that really God had brought, him uh, brought us somebody in the person of Linda Longmire, and she is now the new children's director, and so whether you're related to the children's ministry in any way or not, I would encourage you to uh, find Linda sometime today if you get a chance, if you have time, and introduce yourself and say hello to her. She's already been around for a while, but now she is firmly ensconced as the leader of the uh, children's ministry. And, and um, uh, obviously with that will come some, some changes, some very good changes. Um, and you'll see some memos, and, and some of you maybe have already even seen some information on that. But I just wanted to make that announcement uh, clear to you. We celebrate what Jess has done for us. We really do. Uh, that was a little bit difficult to let go of her, but it's also been great to welcome Linda in. So uh, just to let you know about that. Now, we are in the eighth week of this series on uh, the book of Galatians, the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. A and uh, our passage this morning is 24 verses long. And, and I got to tell you, by the way, please turn there to, to uh, Galatians chapter 4. You're going to need to be there. We're going to camp there for a little while. Uh, 24 verses long, and, and I got pretty upset when I first saw this. I, I felt a little anxiety, a little bit of pressure that we're going to have to cover 24 verses in one Sunday morning until I really started to study this, uh, this passage, and I began to realize that this passage is really a complete narrative unit. It is a self-contained narrative unit, 
and, and there's no way we could have effectively broken it up and communicated it and studied it any other way than to do it all together on one Sunday morning. And because it is a narrative unit, we need to handle it as such. And as I was studying and I was, as I was praying, I felt that the Spirit clearly said to me, listen, Frank, one of two things is going to happen for all the Arcadians this Sunday. Uh, they're either going to be tremendously blessed or they're going to be given a wonderful lesson in patience and perseverance. So... Uh, just hang in there with me this morning. We're going to get through it, and I think it's going to be really good. It is God's Word. So understand that, that um, whatever I do is really secondary to God communicating His Word to you. We are a church that values God word, God's Word, and we're going to study it hard every single Sunday as we do throughout the week. And I want to give you the big idea in this passage. Here's the big idea that overarches everything. This passage is, is extraordinarily oppositional in that it is constantly exhorting the Galatians and you and me today that we have a choice to make between living in freedom or living in slavery, uh, living in, uh, in liberty or living in bondage. So the whole time you should be looking at this passage uh, through that lens. And, and here's the other thing you need to know about this passage. This is really key. This is also Paul least like he's been in the first three chapters, in the first part of chapter four, as a Bible scholar, in this passage, he is much more pastoral. You will see the heart of Paul the pastor coming through in a deeply passionate way during this passage. And so I would just encourage you to get wrapped up in that and listen to Paul's heart as we go through this passage. Uh, let me pray, and then I'll tell you how we're going to proceed for the morning, and we'll get right to it. Uh, so God, we just thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, which your word contains that message. But most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the epitome, the incarnation of all of those things. And so uh, as we study your word today, we pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears to your truth. And God, that you would move me, away, move me out of the way and that your voice would be the voice that is preaching these words today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Well, today's plan is that we're going to spend the bulk of our morning, uh, the teaching time, actually walking through this passage, sort of a couple of verses at a time, stopping along the way to make application as we read these verses. So it's going to be very narrative in that way. We'll probably spend 25, 27 minutes doing that. And then the last 12 or 13 minutes, uh, what we're going to do is we're really going to uh, lean into three things that we're going to talk about that I believe this passage brings up. That is prisons choosing and power where do we get the power to choose in the first place so that's kind of what we're going to do so let's dive right in galatians chapter 4 verse 8 paul writes formerly when you did not know god you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods i have found and maybe you have too that there is a perception and a deception in our culture that true freedom actually comes for those people who are actually not in a relationship with God. In other words, true freedom is found by staying away from anything that has to do with God. And I would tell you that Paul would say this, and I would agree with him, that is simply not true. The fact is, is that you and I are going to be slaves to something. There is no way to live this life not enslaved or in service to something. 
Paul even says, I am a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. But it is in that slavery, that submission to Jesus, where I find actual freedom. But if you're not enslaved to Jesus, if you're not, if you're not, um, so, so to speak, in bondage to Christ, in submission to Christ, you're going to be enslaved to something else. It's going to be something along the lines of the elementary principles of this world, as Paul calls them in Galatians, the worldly philosophies and the empty uh, deceit uh, of the world. Um, and, and, and really, all of us choose which it's going to be. All of us actually choose on pretty much a daily basis, what we're going to be enslaved to. And we're going to talk about that a lot more later during that last part of the application. But for the people that Paul writes to in this letter, he is specifically exhorting them not to go back to being enslaved to either the Mosaic Law. He doesn't want them enslaved to that. We've talked about that for eight long and hard weeks. But he's also saying it's the same as as if you were going back to being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, the the political pundits of the day or the Oprah's and the Deepak's of the day or or the Greek gods, whatever it is that's not Christ. Do not go back and enslave yourself to those things because they are by nature not gods. They are false gods. And as we know, false gods never fail to fail. So then verses nine and ten. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months, seasons and years. This is really interesting because Paul here actually equates the Mosaic Law in all of its negative characteristics and features to these elementary principles, the worldly philosophies and the empty deceits. Now, it's very important to understand this is a big issue. It's not that Paul is against the Mosaic Law. It's not that he doesn't like the Mosaic Law. It's not that he's throwing the Mosaic Law under the bus, but rather he's upset the way the Judaizers are trying to use it. The way the Judaizers are trying to use it is that it just becomes another one of these elementary principles of the world. And he says, listen, you've been freed from this because God came to know you. Why would you voluntarily regress into the bondage of these empty philosophies? And then he says in verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in pain. And here's where we really start to hear Paul the impassioned pastor, speak out. Let me ask you this, and and I'm sure this is true. It's a rhetorical question, but have you ever poured your life into someone, counseled them consistently, loved them ruthlessly? You've been there for every crisis in their event. They call you, you drop everything, and you go to them, and then at some point they turn around and they just walk away from you and from everything that you've ever done for them and everything you've ever taught them? And the answer is yes, of course you've had that experience. Well, pastors have that experience too. In fact, it's not a rare occurrence for pastors. It happens rather frequently. And you need to understand, here you go. I am not whining. Paul's not whining either. That's the nature of the call. That's just the way it is. Nevertheless, it still zings us because we're human beings. Paul was a human being. He planted this church and poured his life into them, and now they are walking away from the truth of his message, the truth of the gospel, to something that is bad for them, something that he knows will not accomplish for them the things that they want it to accomplish. And his heart is breaking. And so verses 12 through 14, he writes, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, 
And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And then verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now this is attested to in several places in the New Testament. Paul had a physical ailment, a really bad and obvious and probably uh, unsightly kind of a gross physical ailment. And there are many possibilities. Scholars speculate that it was, there was something wrong with one of his eyes and it was constantly oozing something. Uh, it could have been his nose that was constantly infected. It, it's been said that he had this very large and deformed nose. Uh, it could have been his hunchback. They said that Paul was uh, uh, kind of hunchbacked. Uh, some people said it probably was, it could have been malaria. Other people said that he, that he had, se- these are all historians, he had, he had seizures, he was constantly having seizures. Whatever it was, it was some obvious physical ailment. As I've studied this, I think there's really good evidence for the eye thing. I think it's probably his eyes or one of his eyes. But scholars are very clear to point out, we can't know for sure. Um, I went to Grand Canyon University for my undergraduate back in the 90s. And uh, I, I would take these Bible classes and I would or- always organize study groups. I was really big into study groups. And, and we had this one class from Dr. Youngblood, and the whole semester was just on the life of Paul. And he would always, he gave four major exams that during that semester, and every major exam was nothing but essay questions. And so we'd have to get together and study uh, for these exams knowing that essay questions were coming. And there were maybe 30 people in this class, and about 20 people would show up for these study groups, we would all cram into somebody's apartment at, at GCU, we'd eat some pizza, and then we'd study uh, whatever it is that we needed to study. A- and on this one exam, we knew that one of the essay questions was going to be, list the seven possibilities, Dr. Youngblood believes there are seven different possibilities for Paul's ailment. And so I, I've always been kind of a prankster, and I like practical jokes and everything, so I got everybody together and I said, alright, when you answer this question, List number one, Paul was a hypochondriac. And everybody said, yeah, okay. So we did that. And I remember Dr. Yumbla came in the day after he had graded these exams. And there's a look on his face. I knew that he he said, he said, I got to tell you guys, the first one I read, I actually was kind of mad. But then the very next, the next three all said the same thing. And I I knew I had been had. Okay, so anyway, I just wanted to tell you that. Anyway, according to this, Paul may have come to the area of Galatia not only to plant churches, but also to to seek help or healing for whatever this condition was. Maybe there was a salve or some hot springs in the area that that, uh, would have helped him. But he had this obvious unsightliness, yet in spite of that, Paul says, you guys welcomed me with open arms as if I was uh, an angel or, or Jesus himself, you welcomed me that way. Now, this is really significant to understand. It's very important because in that culture at that time, to have an, uh, an obvious physical ailment, everybody would have interpreted that as you are being cursed and punished by God and no one should listen to you. If you have something wrong with you, you are accursed by God. That's the way they should have interpreted it. Yet, they listened to Paul's message and they were saved by the grace of God, the gospel of God in the midst of the message. Why? Why did that happen? Here's why. Because Paul's not the greatest preacher in the world and he doesn't look good. The Holy Spirit moved. And I will tell you, that's what happens every time. You got to hear this. 
It is not the purdiness of the preacher or the cleverness of the rhetoric that saves people. It is the gospel. It is God who saves people. Here's, here's a sentence that you've got to get firmly rooted in your understanding of Christian theology. God saves sinners. That's how it's done. That's how it's done. The Holy Spirit shows up and uses people, certainly, but it is the movement of the Spirit that does this. But Paul looks at them and he says, listen, God saved you and you got it. You got it so well. You were so transformed by the gospel that if you could have, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me to fix me. You were willing to do that. What happened? What, ha what happened to this amazing blessing? And then he says, listen, not only are you turning back your backs on the message, but you're also turning your backs on me personally. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I just read the book, uh, Clay Johnson's new book, uh, The Information Diet. Pretty good book. A and in it, the author, Clay Johnson, makes the argument based on tremendous uh, research, I would have to say, that we now live in an age and a culture where people do not want to hear the truth anymore. They only want to hear affirmation. People are not interested in hearing the truth about themselves or about what they believe. They only want to be affirmed about who they are and what they believe. We all practice something called selective exposure. And if we don't like the message, we tune it out until we find a message that we do like. Therefore, we tend to stay rutted in our beliefs and, and in our flaws longer than we really need to. We don't like the truth. In fact, in many ways, we despise truth tellers. We just don't like truth tellers. Well, that's the way it was for Paul 2,000 years ago. But listen to what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 27, 6 says this. Faithful are the truthful wounds of a friend. Faithful is the friend who tells you the truth, but many are the kisses of an enemy. So empty flattery is usually given to you by somebody who is actually an enemy of yours. And Proverbs 14, 25 says this. A truthful witness saves lives, but the one who breathes out lies is deceitful. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Wh when you seek life counsel, are you really serious about it? Are you, really, are, are you open, really open to what people may say to you? Are you really open to people addressing your blind spots, your blind self? Or are you only looking for people who are just going to come into your life and affirm who you are. I, in effect, give you a little dopamine high every time you talk to them. Is that what you're looking for? It's interesting, this author, Chad Johnson, who, uh, my guess, based on reading this book, he is not a Christian. Even so, he uses the philosophy of Proverbs to advance his argument in this book. I think that is absolutely fascinating. Well, Paul is telling the Galatians, listen, it's out of love that I told you this truth and even though I loved you enough to tell you the truth of the message of the gospel, you are now turning on me, and that's really sad. And by the way, I'm not saying that uh, being a truth teller gives us the right to be jerks, okay? I, I, I mean, there are people who have decided my spiritual gift to the world is that I, I'm going to tell everybody the truth, whether I know them or not, and they kind of use it as a hammer going around and just beating people up. Uh, truth telling needs to be done in an environment of grace and trust, okay? You've got to build that first. But... Truth-telling, nevertheless, must be done, especially in communities like ours, in any faith community like ours. Paul wrote this in his second letter to Timothy. 
The time is coming when people will not endure sound or truthful teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. Verse 17, Paul writes, So they, the Judaizers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. They want to isolate you that you may make much of them. See, the Judaizers are using isolation. They're using social scorn as a way to motivate the Gentile Christians to submit themselves to the Mosaic Law. And we use social um, uh, isolation today. We use social pressure today. Uh, I've gone online and kind of studied the movement against, for instance, non-smokers. Now, this is not a value statement. This is just an observation, so don't get nervous, okay? But here's one of the main values of the movement against non-smokers is specifically to isolate them as much as possible so that eventually they will succumb to the social pressure and say, I still want to be a part of what's going on out there in the world, but the only uh, I can't do it if I'm smoking because I've now been relegated just to my bathroom in my house, okay? That's essentially what they're trying to move towards because at some point, the smoker's going to say, I can't live like this anymore, I'll give up the cigarettes. That's the idea. Well, this is what the Judaizers are doing to the Gentiles. Verses 18 through 20, Paul says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I am astonished that this is happening to you. Again, this is the passionate pastoral Paul. Uh, Scott McKnight, who wrote a, a, a commentary on Galatians, writes this. In short... Pastoring is much like mothering. Pastoring is much like mothering. Now, he doesn't mean mothering in a pejorative way. It's not like babysitting. But pastoring is a lot like mothering in, in, the, in the fact that there is emotional, pa- uh, emotional pain attached to pastoring when, when the people that we are shepherding just, just do dumb things that are, uh, that are only going to lead to destruction and hurt and pain. Okay? And the pain is, is, is similar to when a child turns on their mother. So that's why he, Paul uses this metaphor here. And, and he even attaches this emotional pain to a physical pain that every mother understands. Childbirth. Supposedly the most pain, I, I wouldn't know, but supposedly the most painful thing that a person can go through. I, you know. We, we've been through two babies, and I will tell you that, that, that the uh, epidural, it's the greatest thing ever that was ever invented. Not for Jackie's sake, but for my sake, okay? Because uh, I didn't get the epidural, but when Jackie did, I was off the hook, essentially. That's what it was. Carol Burnett once described uh, uh, birth pain this way. She said, if you want to know what it feels like to give birth to a child, grab your lower lip and pull it over your head, okay? Some people got grossed out in the first service by that visual, but... Anyway, listen, Paul, the point Paul is making here is that he is in deep pastoral agony. And you need to know this. Paul is really, really tough, no doubt. Paul would have made a great middle linebacker today, but Paul is also tender. We don't seem to give Paul the credit that he deserves for how tender he really is. Paul has the mind of a scholar, but he has the heart of a shepherd. And now Paul moves into a sermon illustration He goes to the scriptures, the Old Testament again, to illustrate what he's trying to teach here. And he says in verse 21, Tell me, you you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? 
Now, here's Paul, ever the rhetorician, using irony to perfection. He says, hey, listen up. Listen up. You need to understand. The Judaizers are teaching you. You don't know that much about the law because you're Gentiles. The Judaizers are teaching you that the law is really just about rules and regulations about circumcision, your diet, and, and these special days and months and years. But you need to understand that the law is really much more than that. There's also a very large narrative portion of the law where God talks about how he worked with and through his people. If you're going to submit yourself to the law, you need to apply the whole law, he's saying. You need to know the narrative part of the law as well. And then he uses a part uh, uh, of the narrative to make his point. He says in verses 22 and 23, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that would be Hagar, and one by a free woman, that would be Sarah, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this is pretty good. This is really good. Paul is still being their pastor here, but he's kind of slipping back into Mr. Bible smarty pants now, okay? Uh, he, of the promises that God made to Abraham, one of them was that Abe and Sarah were going to have a son. And through that son, the rest of the nation was going to be born and the progeny of the Messiah would be born as well, the seed of the Messiah. Here's the problem, though. Sarah was really old. She was like 90 years old when this promise came about. Not a lot of women out there who were 90 having babies, right? Also, she was barren. She wasn't capable of having children and... Sarah was starting to get anxious because she felt like God wasn't delivering on this promise quick enough. He was being too slow in carrying out this promise. And so Sarah decides, if you read through Genesis, Sarah decides, I'm going to help God keep his promise. I mean, she actually, the logic is God's not sufficiently able to keep his promise without my help. I need to fill the gap for God. Have you ever decided you're going to help God with something that you thought he wasn't capable of handling? Now, it, it doesn't turn out very well, okay? My, he doesn't need my help with this. But Sarah decides, I'm going to help him keep his promise. And so she goes to Abraham, and she says, here's what you need to do. We need to get this thing ramped up. I'm 90. I could be gone tomorrow, all right? I am teeing off on the 18th uh, hole. So let's get this thing ramped up, all right? And she, she says to Abraham, see that, sla that younger slave woman over there, Hagar? You need to go and sleep with her and conceive with her. Here's what Paul is saying. That is the flesh talking. That's what happens when we forget about the spirit and promise of God and we begin to live under the influence of the flesh in our lives. This is what happens when we begin to trust our timing over God's timing, which I admit, that's really hard to do, to trust God's timing when he's not moving as quickly as we would like to. So she tells Abraham this, and of course Abraham thinks it's a swell idea. Good idea, Sarah. You're not going to have to twist my arm to do that. And so he goes and sleeps with Hagar, and she conceives, and it's Ishmael, and he becomes a problem. But then later, in God's good timing, he finally does deliver on his promise, and Isaac is born the son of the promise. Now, have you ever blown something because you inserted your timing into the schedule rather than God's? Have you ever done that? I've never done that before in my life, but I just was wondering if anybody here, I mean, you got I've done that a million times, and it's just not good. You know, it's just not good. So Paul is using these two women, Sarah and Hagar, the free woman and the slave woman, as a metaphor uh, for slavery and freedom, for law and grace, for prison and liberty, for oppression and promise. 
verses 24 and 25. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically or metaphorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. What does Paul mean by the present Jerusalem? Here's what he means. It's the Jerusalem that is under the tyranny of what I call the perps. P-R-P, the professional religious people. The present Jerusalem is still under the tyranny, under the authority, the tutelage, the bondage of the professional religious people, these Pharisees and Sadducees and lawyers and and scribes and all of that. it's It's the present Jerusalem that is in shackles to the law and not grace. It is the black and blue Jerusalem. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I've read about several times. I've heard other people use this before, and it was brought up again in this passage. And I said, all right, if I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to go online. It it sounds just too fantastic to be true. It sounds too goofy to be true. So I went online. I did everything I could to research to see whether or not this was a myth or a legend or something. And I could find nowhere, nowhere was this rebutted. Everybody said, no, this was actually true. At this time in Jerusalem, there was actually a sect of Pharisees who were known as the black and blue Pharisees. Anybody heard of these Pharisees? Anybody? Okay. Apparently, there was a sect of Pharisees known as the black and blue Pharisees. These Pharisees were so pious and so in submission to the law and so determined to keep every point of the law that every time they would go into town and there were a bunch of people around, if they even suspected that a woman would walk into their field of vision... Because if a woman did that, they might look at them and lust and maybe, and maybe fall for them or do something wrong. If they even suspected that a woman would come into their field of vision, they would close their eyes and they would walk around with their eyes closed. And then what would happen is they would start bumping into pillars and walls. One guy writes that, that, that they would fall over carts. They would just trip over carts and, and they would end up getting bruised and, and, and abrasions from this, and they would be black and blue. So literally, they were the black and blue Pharisees. I know it sounds, it sounds goofy, right? But they say, they say this is what's happening. So Paul's saying it's the black and blue Jerusalem. It's the Jerusalem that is living under the old covenant that has absolutely no power to deliver us from sin and evil. And then verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. This is the Jerusalem of the promise. This is the Jerusalem of Sarah and Isaac. And this is the New Jerusalem in a couple of different ways. First of all, it's the New Jerusalem because it houses the new Christian church, which Jesus, in effect, planted. And second of all, it's the New Jerusalem because it's the Jerusalem that John is going to talk about when he writes the book of Revelation some 40 years later, the New Jerusalem, which is the heaven that we're going to be living in after Jesus comes again. Paul is saying this to you and I today. You and I are either going to be slaves like Ishmael or we are going to live as heirs of Isaac. Verse 27, he writes, For it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. He's saying, Sarah, who could not have a baby, she should rejoice. She should break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, Paul's getting a little snarky here, again, admittedly, but it is absolutely brilliant. Paul quotes Isaiah to make this point. Sarah was not capable of having a child. So the only possible way that she could have this child of the promise was if God 
miraculously intervened and did something on her behalf. That's the only way. And what he's saying is that the only way that you and I, anybody, since the death and resurrection of Christ, that you and I can become Christians is if God miraculously intervenes in our life and opens up our eyes and our heart to the truth of the gospel. He says it's the same type of miracle that must happen. We've been saying this for weeks. If you're a Christian, it is because God has specifically intervened in your life and, and shown you the truth. And so now Paul wraps up. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise, but just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was according to the spirit. So it is now. So your adoption, you who are sons and daughters of God, has nothing to do with law, bondage, slavery, has nothing to do with ethnicity, and it has everything to do with the promise and the spirit of God. That's what Paul is saying here. And just like in the days of Ishmael, those of us who are people of the promise, people of the spirit of God, we're going to be persecuted. The, the Judaizers were doing it to the Gentiles then, and people today, Christians today, are also persecuted for their faith. Now, I think it's helpful. We, t we toss that around a lot. I think it's helpful to define what it means, what persecution means. And so uh, I'm going to quote McKnight because I think it's a good, uh, a good definition. He writes that persecution is overtly opposing a Christian for either obeying God or for declaring God's truth and will. So we can be persecuted simply by following Jesus. That's it. Somebody finds out that you're following Jesus, they might push back against you. They might persecute you. As Thomas Solwell says in his book, Intellectuals in Society, it seems that the gospel of tolerance is for everyone except Christians. And then verse 30, Paul says, But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son uh, with the son of the free woman. Now, <laughs> this is a little bit tricky. If you know your New Testament language, you know that the words cast out is hell language. Hell language. So Paul's saying here that if, if we follow legalists and Judaizers and worldly wisdom and philosophies and empty deceits, we are risking a permanent trip to a place where weeping and the gnashing of, of teeth rule. That's what he's saying. Now, here you go. Touchy question. Is Paul saying you can lose your salvation? I would say the answer is no, but this might be something for your redemption communities to dive into a little bit deeper and have a conversation about. It's interesting stuff to unpack. So that's the passage. Now I want to take 10 more minutes and end with these three things. Prison, choice or choosing, and power. Now reading and studying and living with this passage, you notice that there's a lot of oppositional language in this passage slave free bondage freedom present jerusalem new jerusalem flesh spirit i do some of you know this i do prison ministry and and when i read and study this passage it just makes me think about prisons and it makes me think about prisoners a and i will tell you all the guys that i work with are in prison because they either are or were in bondage to something it might have been an addiction or a behavior or a sense of entitlement, or lust, or covetousness, or a temper, or an attitude. And every one of them, whether they're willing to admit it or not, are there by their own choice. 
They chose to be there. They need to take personal responsibility for that. I will tell you that. And, and as you probably know, there are a lot of them that do not take responsibility and accountability for that. They will tell you, I was a victim of the circumstances. I was a victim of the system, uh, whatever it is. And those, those are guys that are much tougher to work with. I, I find it much easier to make advances with these guys when they're willing to own what they have done. But at any rate, no matter what, whether they, s- they understand it or not, it was their choice. Edgar Andrews, who wrote a commentary on Galatians, says of Galatians 4 that Paul is saying that the Galatian Gentiles are imprisoning themselves to the law and the Judaizers. They are imprisoning themselves. They are willingly entering a prison of sorts. They are choosing to be in bondage. And so obviously the question for you and me today has to be, what are our prisons? What are the prisons that you and I willingly choose to enslave ourselves to? Two, what are the elementary principles and spirits of this world that we are worshiping, that we are in slavery to, that we are exalting and idolizing over and above the righteousness of Jesus Christ? And the list of potential prisons for you and I is long, illustrious, and alluring. It can be religious legalism. It can be stuff and wealth. It can be power or status or prestige. It can be the opinion of others. Anybody here enslaved in prison to the opinion of of others. It, it can be a cause that's gotten out of hand. It can be ambition that's not tempered with contentment. Or it can be what James Davidson Hunter describes in his book as symbolic capital. He says that's the new capital in our ego-casting world. We have, we have um, political capital. We have economic or financial capital. And he says now we have symbolic capital. Well, what is symbolic capital? Symbolic capital is how you and I spend our money on things that we need, but in such a way as to let everybody else know exactly who we are and where we're supposed to be in the pecking order of society. And he goes on to describe. So maybe you drive a BMW instead of a Honda. That's symbolic capital. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a BMW. I'm just saying this is, this is what's... Hey, oh, here you go. Here's another one. Maybe you drive a Prius instead of a full-size SUV. And you find symbolic capital there. Uh, Maybe it's in the clothes you wear. Some people find their symbolic capital in how they dress, the color they use, the labels that they have. Um, Sometimes your symbolic capital has to do with your education. Okay? So where did you get your college degree? Did you get your college degree at Stanford University or at Arizona State University? Because everybody knows that much more capital with ASU, right? Come on now, i got to get me one amen out of that. I mean, come on, all right? Okay. So it could be the neighborhood you live in. Do you live in the right neighborhood with the right name on the neighborhood? How many followers or friends do you have on Facebook and Twitter? That becomes symbolic capital as well. We can become enslaved to these things. Um, there's this prisoner that I've been working with now for eight years. He was not a Christian when he went in. He is a Christian now, and I will tell you, uh, just trust me on this testimony, I have rarely seen anybody's life radically changed as much and transformed as much as this guy's. So when you hear this quote, you might think, ah, it sounds a little bit like sour grapes, but believe me, it isn't. I think it's just a really keen observation. We were sitting and talking one day, and he said this. He said, you know, Frank, everyone is in a prison. Mine just happens to have bars, locks, and razor wire. Everyone is in a prison. Mine just happens to have bars, locks, and razor wire. So the question again is, what's your prison? What's my prison? What, what is holding us in bondage? What is making us slaves? 
And here's what we need to realize. Jesus not only came to free us from the consequences eternally of our sin, but he also came to free us from what imprisons us now, the sin and the tyranny of anything that is enslaving us now. And in this passage, Paul says to the Galatians and to you and me, you really got to choose this. You got to work hard to choose this. He says, what's it going to be? Jesus or the elementary principles? Grace or law? Freedom or bondage? Is it going to be liberty or prison? Is it going to be spirit or flesh? Is it going to be the new Jerusalem or the old Jerusalem? And I, I got to tell you something. Listen here. I've had my come to Jesus moment. It was in 1987. I was 27 years old. Many of you have had your come to Jesus moment. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about how are you going to live after you have had your come to Jesus moment? Are you going to choose to lean into the grace of God or are you going to choose to go back and imprison yourself to those elementary principles, which I admit are very alluring? And he says, you need to make this choice all the time. You can't just choose this once and be done with it. You have to choose weekly, daily, sometimes every hour. If you've ever forgiven someone, you understand that forgiving someone is not a one-and-done deal, right? When you forgive someone, especially if they've really done something awful to you, you realize that forgiving someone is something that happens daily. Sometimes out if you're going to forgive them, you're going to have to forgive them every day, every hour, as you're reminded of what was done to you. Paul's saying it's the same thing. If you're going to do this, if you're going to lean into grace, you've got to be aware of it and lean into it all the time. Make the choice all the time. And I know some of you are saying, well, how do you do that? Where do you get the power to do that? Because, because we can't just resolve to do better. I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do better. That doesn't work, does it? might work for five minutes. Some of you are really tough. It worked for five days, okay? But it doesn't work permanently. You can't just read more. I'm going to read more books. I'm going to get power there. I think reading books is a really good thing. You're not going to get a lot of power from it, though. It's just going to help you, Okay? I know, I'm going to go to more Bible studies. I'm already going to two Bible studies a week. I'm going to go to three more Bible studies this week. That's where I'll get my power. I like Bible studies. Put me down for a yes for Bible studies, but that's not where you get the power. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm going to start listening to cri more Christian music. That'll give me the power. Mm, no, not there. We find the power in Jesus, the one who powerfully took our deserved place on the cross and released us from the bondage of what ails us in this world today. It's only in him that we find this power. Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, uses the Greek idiom that we translate in Christ 187 times. You must be in Christ. Lean into being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Hebrew nine Hebrews chapter 9 describes the power like this tells us that the saving and sanctifying blood of Christ is what purifies us so that we no longer have to offer dead works to God in the hopes that they will somehow save us. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to sa for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we get that from the power of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 says, 
your faith does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We didn't quite finish our passage in Galatians 4. Verse 31, the last verse, Paul says, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Here's what he's saying. Your identity is now in Christ and his power, which means you have the power to choose to live in this grace every single day. So what's it going to be, slave or free? Let's pray together. Sean and the team will come up and lead us through the rest of the service. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for challenging us with your word. We thank you for your words of truth. And though we don't like to hear them always, we know that they are rich, that they are sanctified, that they are true. And so, God, we just pray that you'd give us the courage again, the power from your son, Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit in us to live by it. And we ask it in your name. Amen.